I had a fry every day this summer. Working on building sites. You know, now again, we didn't win, so maybe it wasn't the right thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> I should have been there, the fruit and the pasta. <laughs> OTB AM, live, weekday mornings from 7.30 on the OTB Sports app. So Serena Williams has announced her retirement from tennis. It will happen after the US Open, which starts this month. Uh, the numbers are pretty frightening, really. 23 Grand Slam singles titles, 73 singles titles in total, uh, 14 Grand Slam doubles, four Olympic gold medals, 319 weeks at world number one. She's the highest earning female athlete of all time. And on it goes. She broke the news in an article uh, for Vogue today. She said, it's the hardest thing that I could ever imagine. I don't want it to be all over, but at the same time, I'm ready for what's next. Very happy to bring in Caitlin Thompson of Racket Magazine. You're very welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. So I guess we are talking uh, about somebody very iconic here in the absolute highest echelon. She is part of that group with Ali and Tiger and Jordan and Pele and Maradona. She is uh, Serena. She's really hard to put into words just in terms of the outsized footprint she leaves the sport with and also what she's done outside the sport. I mean, she's truly transcended the game in a way that's, uh, I think, as you as you listed, among the greatest names of, you know, athletes of any kind of sport in history. Yeah. She said of uh, retirement recently, it comes up, I get an uncomfortable lump in my throat and I start to cry. The only person I've really gone there with is my therapist. One thing is I'm not going to sugarcoat this. So she's somebody who's very honest, even at 40. This is a devastating moment in her life to have to retire. Yeah, I think she's somebody who we know as a fighter in every context. She's a fighter on the court. She never says die. And I think, you know, reading that essay that she sort of um, collaborated with Vogue to publish for the September issue that came out today, you know, it's very clear she's ambivalent about this. I think she, if she were able to do more with her body, with her time, with her fitness, with her family, uh, you know, she alludes to wanting to have more children in that essay. And, you know, if she were a man, she wouldn't have to give up uh, the chance to play to, to make that happen. Um, so, yeah, I mean, this is a, this is an insight into an athlete who's not going away happily or without some feelings of conflict. And that is what makes her really interesting. She's a really interesting person. And I yeah. think this this announcement was handled in a really interesting way. It was interesting as well. She said in five years that her daughter Olympia has only spent one 24 hour period away from me. That's quite extraordinary given the lifestyle. Absolutely. And I mean, she's the first to admit in that essay that she has a lot of help. Um, she also has a husband who I think um, you know, certainly is a successful business uh, sort of thinker and leader in his own right, but somebody who's been able to go really into more of a support role as she's traveled the world and continued up her, you know, schedule for the most part. The other thing that needs to be said, though, is that she hasn't really played a full schedule of tennis since Olympia has been born. That's not a knock on her, but it would be unrealistic to say she's been really full time back to the tour uh, ever since, you know, she won that Australian Open while pregnant and then left to go have Olympia. And what we now know was a very complicated delivery and, mm. and, you know, had some complications even after birth postpartum. So Serena hasn't really been a full-time tennis player in the five years since she's been back. I think she's made, um, you know, some stronger showings uh, in some of the seasons than others. But really, I think a lot of us were sort of waiting for this announcement to happen because the appearances that she does make 
are, are really fewer and far between and have been for a couple of years. Yeah, if people are wondering about her recent form, she won her first singles match in over a year uh, the other week in Toronto. And the last Grand Slam was that Australian Open when she was eight or nine weeks pregnant in 2017. Yeah, I mean, she's come close. In those first couple of years back, uh, she got to a few finals. She notably got to the U.S. Open final where she lost against Naomi Osaka. She made another U.S. Open final where she lost um, against uh, Bianca Andrescu, and she lost two Wimbledon finals, one against Angelique Kerber, I believe, and the other against uh, Simona Halep. So she's really been in the mix. Like, she's made a very, very strong showing, especially postpartum. I mean, we've seen other tennis players do that. Mm. Kim Kleisters comes to mind who won a slam uh, on either side of pregnancy, several in fact. But, you know, it's no, it's no easy feat to accomplish. And I think really in the past couple of years, um, her efforts to get deep into slams and put herself into contention the way she did immediately after she became a mother mm. um, really kind of started fading. You know, she kept going out earlier and earlier in tournaments. And I think, you know, eventually reality sort of catches up with us. Right. And, and I think, you know, going back to what she announced today, mm. it really does seem like she didn't come to this conclusion or resolution without some very deep conflict that maybe is still present. I watched King Richard uh, recently, a movie which may well be forever overshadowed by Will Smith slapping Chris Rock. And I wasn't that keen to watch it. I just assumed that their involvement meant it would be happy, clappy, hollow and and not up to much. But actually, it was surprisingly uh, decent. And towards the end of the movie, which really charts their um, extraordinary beginnings and like it's it's a really worthwhile thing, maybe just to uh, nod back to again. But. Uh, Venus has made her first real inroad into the public consciousness and Serena, the younger sister, is uh, very happy for her sister, but, you know, is looking on with some impatience and and jealousy and Richard Williams, a.k.a. Will Smith, spots this and he walks over to this is right towards the end of the movie and he says, Venus is going to be the world number one. You're going to be the greatest of all time. I don't know if that happened. (laughs) But was that always the sense, do you think, Caitlin, that Serena was going to be the one? It's hard to say. I mean, I think, yes, in the sense that Rick Macy and several other of the coaches, even portrayed in that film, but several of the other coaches who sort of famously got a look at them when they were playing. And the reason I use that phrase, got a look at them, is Serena and her sister Venus did not play U.S. junior tennis. They didn't play international junior tennis the way that, you know, by the time you see a Victoria Azarenka or somebody like Coco Goff, you know, they've usually won or contended for junior Wimbledon, junior Roland Garros, junior Australian Open, um, you know, that requires, you know, sort of playing your way up the ladder locally. And then, you know, obviously in your nation and Richard Williams very smartly kept them out of that system. Um, and so some of the mystery surrounding their arrival on the tour was how good they actually could be. Obviously, their dad was a hype man. Um, of the finest order, but it wasn't really clear if they were going to be ready for the pros because they had to sort of shoot this traditional sort of training, um, you know, training grounds, training um, apparatus for, for, for junior development. And so some of the coaches who had a chance to look at them or play with them or, or get to know the family a little bit kind of did point out Serena might be the superior athlete. Um, And I think what I liked about that film and what, Serena's announcement sort of today both nodded to is that that film really gave Venus her due both as the trailblazer, but also the person who kind of needed to go first and re- remove barriers so that Serena could really maximize her potential. Serena said it, 
uh, about her sister, which is absolutely true. Not only was that younger sibling jealousy uh, sort of momentum and motivation building, but also it was because Serena faced a, you know, less sort of thorny path because of what Venus had done to kind of remove some of those obstacles, break ground, create the, the you know, conversation around equal pay at places like Wimbledon. And so it really is interesting, frankly, that Serena is retiring before Venus, who's older, um, but also that she kind of acknowledges that Venus, you know, walked so she could run. And I think that duality has always been part of, of their career and the media narrative around them. When they move from Compton to that Rick Macy Academy in Florida, all the coaches are aghast that Richard Williams is taking his daughters out of junior tennis. And it's it's said numerous times, well, this is just the thing you do. This is the route into the pro circuit. You can't just not play junior tennis. Now, certainly in the movie, it's portrayed almost as, well, look, I want my daughters to have a childhood and to do well at school. But you mentioned there Richard Williams was also the ultimate hype man. Uh, to what extent do you think it was about giving them a childhood and, and thinking about their long term development versus almost the mystery and creating the hype? I think it was probably both. I mean, Richard Williams was a much more complicated and at times, honestly, kind of sinister force than that movie portrayed. I mean, they really leaned into how protective he was of his daughters, which was by all accounts, absolutely true. Um, he was also a businessman who was creating demand and creating, um, you know, negotiations with apparel companies before, you know, really was certainly maybe done at the time. Um, you know, so I think he was a lot savvier and a little less simple than the movie. Obviously, it's a it's a Hollywood creation yeah. um, wanted to portray. But I actually think that was, again, probably to their benefit. I mean, Richard Williams, again, complicated guy. You can read a lot about him. You know, while he was telling the world that his daughters were going to be number one in the world, which they were, and nobody believed him. He also gave an interview, I think, to Esquire in the 90s, where he said he was going to have multi-platinum albums that would make, you know, Michael Jackson blush. So you're kind of like, well, some of that's true. And it does take this kind of chutzpah to to make, um, I think, something out of not a lot. So credit to him. But also, he's kind of more wildly interesting and and textured than certainly, you know, Will Smith or a Hollywood vehicle is, is inclined to portray. And again, that's sort of one of the many interesting things about the Williams family. They're not too super, super linear. There's a lot of texture there. And I think, you know, in, in saying goodbye to Serena, you know, at some point, it's kind of unclear what her last tournament is going to be. And she left a little bit open. We are losing this really sort of fascinating person from the mix. Yeah. Um, although, you know, you could very rightly point out that we haven't really had her uh, for the past couple of years. A last thought on, on Venus and Serena, because, I mean, it's one of the most iconic images, I suppose, of the of 21st century sports is those two sisters from Compton playing on Wimbledon Centre Court in the final. It, it, was, it was extraordinary at the time. It's extraordinary in retrospect of their nine Grand Slam finals. Serena wins 7-2 and that is a difficult thing and, and, and it felt like a difficult thing for them. Your sense of their relationship, Caitlin? I think that was not that difficult for Venus. I think losing those two matches was more difficult for Serena than losing the se- seven matches than it was for Venus, if that makes sense. My understanding of their dynamic and I've known people who have you know, obviously spent a lot more time and, and worked with them or coached them or, or played alongside them. The impression I have is that Venus at the end of the day would do anything for her little sister. And if not accepted or, or gladly took second place, she didn't seem to put out by the fact that 
she'd had a great career. And as it was happening, even then it was being eclipsed by this sort of much more uh, attention grabbing dynamic, you know, ultimately more successful younger sister. And I think that's sort of always been, again, one of the more interesting things about them. They didn't seem super uh, into the rivalry that, you know, you might be tempted to create. And even to such a degree that a lot of those finals that you just cited were not all that competitive. You know, some of them were, to be clear, but not all of them had that sort of sizzle of two people who were really going at it, mainly because you kind of got the sense that Venus might be, you know, pulling punches or maybe it's hard to play your sister, you know, (laughs) which I think happens regardless of whether it's, you know, in a backyard or on the highest stages of the game. So I don't ever get the sense that Venus begrudged her. If anything, I think she's Serena's number one fan. Yeah. And then nobody had a winning record against her. Martina Hingis, Williams was seven and six. Jennifer Capriati, 10 and seven. Justine Ennan, eight and six. Sharapova, 20 and two. Really catches the eye. What made Williams so great, in your opinion? What like when you're trying to describe her game to generations later on? Let's just pretend they can't look it up on YouTube for a moment. What would you, <laughs> what are we saying about yeah. it? <laughs> if you look it up on YouTube between the uh, years of like t- 2005 to 2015, you're you know the you see it within a within a second. Yeah. Um, and I do want to point out that Justine Henna record was the closest. Had Henna not retired, I think maybe they would have had some classics because um, they were actually quite, I don't want to say evenly matched, but it was the closest that she came to a true rival. Um, unlike, you know, 20 and two against Sharapova, which those two wins on Maria's side came very early. And then Serena spent, you know, the better part of two decades uh, winning quite easily. But I do think for me, what makes her so amazing is, you know, you list all the grand slams, you list all the titles, you list all the gold medals, you list all the, um, you know, records that she's, she's claimed at, you know, number one and all this stuff. And sure, on paper, all of it, but really for me is just the separation. And I'm going to steal a line from um, my friend and one of our contributors, Andrea Petkovic, who talked about very recently the difference between playing somebody like Naomi Osaka, who hits through you with giant shots, and somebody like Serena. And she said, you know, you think Serena is going to hit through you because she has power. She has obviously famously probably the best serve, certainly in the women's game, maybe contender for all time. Um, she can hit through you. She has easy power on both sides, but really it's actually just how she overwhelms you in every single way. She's faster. She's more clinically strategic in terms of placement. She's got incredible hands, which is why she's won all those doubles titles. She's got a feathery slice, but also an incredibly powerful and placeable, you know, ground strokes from, from both sides. So really she just does everything so much better than anybody else. And I'm hopefully will be forgiven if I get this wrong because I'm not a giant basketball fan, but it has been described to me the way that Michael Jordan played at his the height of his powers, how he just did everything better than everyone else. And it was so clear mm. that he was a cut above in every way, defending offense from the field, up close, et cetera, speed, timing, anticipation. And that's sort of the sense I get from, from what Serena during that really like decade, decade and a half of dominance she was doing, she, nobody just could come close to her. And even when you would watch a match that it looked like she was going to lose, somehow you knew she had through a combination of, you know, psychological advantage and also just tricks up her sleeve, like she could fight her way out of it. And so she really was at the height of her powers, sort of untouchable. And like I said, Justine Hennon was the only person who got close, mm. um, but she was really only able to do it for a couple of years. And then she you know, uh, stepped out of the game. So yes, it's hard. All of these things make Serena great. It's not just the records. The records are indicative 
of the real separation she had from the rest of the field. Mm. Um, and I think for me, that's that's really the lasting legacy. Yeah, I saw she won 37 Grand Slam matches from a set down, which is an extraordinary feat in and of itself as well. Uh, she said in um, this Vogue essay, at one point she talks about uh, Venus and she says, unlike Venus, who's always been stoic and classy, I've never been one to contain my emotions. And that is something that I'll remember about her. And it's a lingering image. And I do think of Flushing Meadows in 18 and Osaka and that extraordinary evening where she called Carlos Ramos a thief and a sexist and told him that he would never umpire on a court of mine again. And she said, I've never cheated in my life. I have a daughter. You owe me an apology. And she told another official that she was being mistreated because she was a woman. And then her coach actually admitted afterwards he had been sending her signals. So, look, I kind of love and respect a sore loser as well, even when she was being at her indignant worst. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a disservice to her not to address the fact that she wasn't the greatest sport. Um, I don't think she would ever cheat anybody, but I definitely, you know, the incident you describe, also the another incident at the US Open where she threatened to shove a ball down a lines person's throat. I mean, I think the absolute competitive fire that comes with uh, winning 23 Grand Slams, the most of all time, men or women, uh, has some edge. It means you're going to win and want to win at all costs and you're not going to say die and you're going to fight. And whether the fight is with an umpire or with your opponent or maybe with yourself, she was never, she never shied from that fight. I'm not totally... Um, in love personally with what that always meant um, because for me, you know, and as I've talked about, I've been openly critical of her at times when I felt like that crossed a line and that's not the particular way that I like to see the game played when it crosses into that sort of area. That said, it is a part of her legacy and it did, I have to imagine, fuel her and drive her to the greatest heights, you know? Um, it's not a competitive friendship out there, right? So I do think that Serena, you know, her legacy, as a champion is not tarnished at all, but it is necessary to note that she mixed it up with whoever. And, you know, Serena Williams would not hesitate to cut you if she needed to, uh, if you stood between her and a grand slam. And I think that's frankly, probably what made her so great. Mm. These were two sisters in a family making their way in a very white sport as well. And she boycotted the Ericsson Open as it was in 01, but a tournament at Indian Wells from 01 through to 2015, because well, her father had looked for an apology for racist abuse from the tournament director uh, for racist abuse he'd received in the crowd and that wasn't forthcoming. And so they boycotted that tournament for the guts of, what, 14, 15 years. Uh, generally, uh, did did racism, um, uh, was it a factor in their in their week-to-week tennis life or isolated incidents or, or, or to what extent uh, was it a factor in their um, experience in, in the sport? I mean, I can answer in a way I might imagine, you know, and asking, uh, you know, a white woman to speculate. Uh, I do want to acknowledge that I, it is just that speculation. And yeah. I, I don't, you know, be overly confident in my ability to answer or put myself in, in anybody's shoes. But yeah, I mean, for what they've talked about and from what I have seen in the sport myself coming up playing tennis in the South, um, you know, there's a lot of gatekeeping and we know that from every person who's tried to break barriers uh, within the sport of tennis and probably every other one as well. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, I think they were absolutely justified to boycott Indian Wells where the crowd 
famously turned on them. And according to Richard Williams, and I don't think he'd have any motivation to, to make this up, you know, they had racial epithets hurled at them. I've, I've uh, looked at footage of that and it seems like that was in fact the case. And I think, you know, that incident is indicative of a larger trend of a larger experience, you know, especially I think for black Americans, certainly, um, you know, when you think about locker rooms and acceptance and uh, a lot of the times, you know, these guys were in locker rooms with Eastern Europeans who'd never played next to a black person or with a black person. And, you know, those are firsthand accounts that we know. So I think, you know, at the very least, this was a very, to me, welcome disruption, but a disruption Mm -hmm. to the status quo, um, you know, obviously they're great, you know, black tennis players, Althea Gibson, chief among them, Lori McNeil, Zena Garrison, you know, they weren't the first, but the first to win consistently and be fixtures in stardom and in finals, they essentially were, um, you know, and I think it's hard to separate what must have been a pretty constant experience from isolated incidents. I don't know that they would necessarily feel very different from the people experiencing them. Right. It mm. probably feels like a larger um, you know, a larger trend. And so I think what is interesting to understand about them is I take all of their reports of, um, you know, racial static as, of course, face value, that's their experience, but also coming from where they came from in terms of Compton, California, where their father came from, which is, you know, the deep South. These are folks who are, you know, only generations removed from slavery and, um, you know, servitude and, and in the South, it feels like not enough distance has happened between the civil war and, and modern day. And so, you know, I think what is amazing and probably helped a lot is having siblings and a really, um, vocal and visible and supportive family, because it is useful to anybody in a, in a sort of tumultuous, difficult, pressure filled environment like tennis that really relies on the individual. Um, especially if you're black and you're in a sport that doesn't have a lot of faces that look like yours. Mm. Caitlin Thompson, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Thanks again. Caitlin Thompson there of Racket Magazine.